this is actor Alec Guinness. You're about to listen to a podcast about a film that I was not in. I should have been in it, but they didn't ask me. This is for Screen and Country, and the film is 1964's Zulu. Thank you. Hello! Hello! Welcome to another episode. Jason, this is For Screen and Country. And what do we do on this show, Jason? Well, on this show, Brendan, we go through the BFI's Top 100 list in random order and talk about the films that we watch. And that is the British Film Institute's Top 100 British Films. I just wanted to clarify that because I had a lot of people ask me about that because they they were linking to lists uh, that was like the BFI Top 100. And they were like, "Uh, some of these aren't British. And like, no, 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 no. It's the BFI Top 100 British films yes. of all time. Not just like BFI's Top 100 movies that they kind of sort of thought they were pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Although that's a good title. For I it. mean, they could do a list of like the Top 100 films that British people like, but that's <laughs> not what we're doing. Oh boy. But what we are talking about this week, uh, rolled, the di- rolled the dice last episode and we got number 31 on the list of the Top 100, Zulu. But before we get to Zulu, Jason. Yes, Brendan. We have some uh, comments from last week's episode on Dr. Zhivago. Ah. I would like to apologize in advance. I am battling a cold and a sore throat and my voice might go in and out. And I apologize to all of your ears. And you'll be able to figure out when we recorded this when you hear the episode where his voice sounds like a teenager. <laughs> That's right. These are not recorded in order. Surprise, surprise. Welcome to the world of podcasting. Woo! I also turn into more of a dick when I get a cold. Oh, that explains it. Uh, so yeah, let's read some comments that we received from last week's episode on Dr. Javago. These are from Facebook. Um, I just, I pulled some of them here. So, Kat, Kat Webster uh, says Dr. Javago is her favorite David Lean film. Huh. She also uh, pointed out a little factoid that we didn't... Uh, we didn't know at the time is that Omar Sharif said in in an interview years ago that he was worried that he had no dialogue because he has very little dialogue in the movie, which we didn't even pick up on. I don't think. Yeah, I suppose when you think about it, yeah, he doesn't really actually speak that much. Um, certainly more than Agrav, at least at least in those scenes because he doesn't get to talk at all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so he was worried that he had almost no dialogue, even though he was the title character. Uh, David Lee remind reminded him that his character was a poet and an observer. So make so uh, it, it, he said it was all. So she said, "Make sure you take note of how much we watch Sharif's eyes. They yeah. are magical. You Which, can't take your eyes off them. Really, they are magical. But remember, the reason for that is because they were pulled back with tape because he looked quote too Egyptian. Classic David Lee move right there. <laughs> we'll talk more about that when we get to Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> One day, someday." Not singing. All right. <laughs> what do we, uh, what, what, what else do we got here, Jason? Well, let's see. We have another comment. This is from Holden Martinson. Holden says, yeah, it's actually my grandpa on my dad's fav- side's favorite movie. It's been maybe a decade since I've seen Dr. Zhivago, but I really remember liking it and being pretty devastated by the ending. I'm sure I'll get it to it one of these days. Julie Christie is one of my favorite actresses and David Sharif, David Sharif, I'm, Omar Sharif I think is terrific means, in it. I think he means Omar. I think he means Omar. I mean, they called him David in private. It was, uh, it was a nickname. David. 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 And that concludes the David cast. Thank you. 
Uh, Melanie Manning says, I thought it was a beautiful movie that felt a little bit empty. I agree with that. Which is what we kind of, uh, we kind of alluded to that last week. she kind of nailed what we were thinking. She said, felt like it was trying to be epic instead of flowing naturally. uh, Definitely visually stunning, but I wouldn't put it number 27. Which, I mean, we're only two episodes in at this point, Mm -hmm. but I think, uh, I would put it at somewhere between one and two at this point. I think uh, I think it won't fall. I think it'll fall lower for me at 27 ultimately when we get through this list. We'll see. I mean, it is a David Lean movie, so it has that going for it. And that, at least in my mind, boosts it a lot just because of how it's shot and, and the great actors in it, even though it isn't nearly as good as other David Lean movies, which we will be talking about at some point at length. <laughs> well, what does Brett Sonnenshine say? Brett Sonnenshine says, I know it's set in old time Russia, but one look at Julie Christie's hair and makeup and you know it's a film from the mid 60s. Yeah, I guess I get that. Yeah, well, that's true. There's she definitely a- looks, she, she looks less like a Russian peasant and more like a glamorous Russian model. It's it's not very uh, contemporary of the time period that they set in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, I think that's a, that's a pretty, uh, someone even pointed out, I think underneath in the comments that it's a pretty, uh, Typical thing to happen with films in the 60s. Hal Dworkin said, I'll be the contrarian here because there were, I'm, I'm going to say, I'm not, I didn't copy every comic because there were a lot of comments. You here. mean we're not getting universally positive praise for this movie, Brendan? <laughs> no, right? He said, I'll be the contrarian here and say that I hated it. I was infuriated by the protagonist's lack of agency. He's kind of an anti-T.E. Lawrence. Mm-hmm. And how he lackadaisically bounces between love interests. Accordingly, I had no sympathy for him and the movie just didn't connect for me. Hal makes a good point. So this person, he Hal hated it. Yeah, I mean, I don't agree that I hate the movie, but I think he makes a good point. Yeah, that, that how much does Zhivago actually like do in the movie? How much does he actually cause? How much is as a result of his actions? Yeah. Not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. He's kind of being dragged along. Uh, so I, let's go through a couple of quick ones here. So Eric Diedrichs says the first half is amazing. The second is good, but not at the same level. I Agreed. think, I think that was kind of my, well, my take on and it. And as we talked about, especially cause it's such a long, like it's almost like such a long anticlimax at the end of the movie. It's like, mm, yeah, I see why, why people think the next one's interesting that we didn't even think of. Yeah. Uh, from uh, Spencer Keeman. He says, a very enjoyable film, but Julie Christie's mom vanishes from the story halfway through with that explanation. Did I miss something? That's a good question. That yeah, was strange, She just right? kind of does disappear. It, it must be one of those things that they thought, well, we can we can just kind of avoid the character now uh, because they won't notice that it's gone. And clearly, uh, what was her name? Uh, his name is Spencer. Spencer, his name. Spencer clearly noticed it, but we didn't. No, I yeah, that's the thing. I like I just assume well we're in a different setting now, so we kind of moved on from that character. Yeah, but yeah, there isn't really an answer given. I mean, she gets treatment from the doctor. I think that's the last. I assume time we she see gets her. killed in a purge of some sort. That would be my assumption. Like the film, The Purge. Yeah, yeah. The, well, uh, the, the yeah. Purge, Russian Revolution style. That's right. Well, I mean, the purges were a real thing that happened, Brendan. If we want to get down into history, no, okay. it's a movie. <laughs> But yes, uh, no, uh, where do we go here? Wade Sheeler, uh, also uh, contrarian, says, uh, painful to get through, least favorite lean. Yeah, I, I I felt that way kind of the first time I watched it years ago. I made an attempt to watch it, and I just I couldn't do it. But I'm glad I went back for this podcast specifically and watched it, because, you know, like I say, we, we did enjoy a lot about it, but I can see, I absolutely can see why people think that. And on the exact opposite end of the coin, what is Travis Burgess saying? He says, personally, Dr. Zhivago is one of his favorite films of all time. He actually finds it more successful as a film than Lawrence of Arabia. I don't agree with that. Also, fun fact, it was also on the 97 AFI list. Really? Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah the, the, uh, the 1998 or 97 or whatever. Um, Dr. Zhivago was on the AFI Wait, list so- until it was it was not 
so, it was not put back though for the 2007 revival. So let's let, let's just clear something up here. The AFI list and the BFI list are these lists like is the AFI list specifically American movies or movies that are favorite of Americans? Supposed to be American movies. And, and same with the BFI list, specifically British movies. Right. So if Zhivago's on both lists, what the fuck is it, Brendan? What is it? Well, that's the question. With it is noble well, mind to suffer the sling. We'll get there. We'll get there eventually. Don't I'll, worry I'll tell you, though, like, Javago is not on the AFI anymore, though, because the 2007 revival yeah. took it off the list, and it took the third man off the list, hmm. which is another BFI and AFI movie until that point. Now, this the BFI list has not been updated since 1999. Right. That's a long time. That's I almost mean, 20 years. That's a long time. Long time indeed. Uh... But I feel like it's one of those lists that won't get revised. I think it was just a top 100, you know, by people in the industry. Uh, there's been, like, sight and sound ones. There's been similar ones like that. But but the thing is with the sight... I didn't want to do the sight and sound for this mm. podcast. Because this podcast, that, that is about film in general. Mm-hmm. I wanted to just be British film. And Fair that's enough. why this list uh, was a, you know... Well, also, and if you remember, in 1999, the British Parliament passed a law saying that no more British films were allowed to be made. So our, our list is actually as, is as current as it could possibly be. Yes, that's 100% true. Mm-hmm. So the last comment is from Sean Holt, and he just says, Every winter scene is worthy of being framed as a portrait. Gorgeous film. Narrative struggles a bit over its lengthy runtime, but I still liked it. So I think we get a uh, general consensus yeah. of... Well, I mean, there's obviously people that hate it, people that love it, but I mean, the, the general consensus is it struggles a bit in how long it is. It's beautiful. It's well acted. Ultimately, it's not a perfect movie. It's it's a good movie. Divisive amongst our fans and all fans of movies. And I wrote this down just because I want to see your take on somebody. Uh, actually, Chris from the More Gooder Than podcast mm-hmm. suggested we do this for uh, each movie. Comparing the number, uh, so this was number 27 on yep. the BFI list, Dr. Zhivago. Just for fun, comparing it to what the number 27 is on the AFI list. So if you haven't seen the movie, I mean, not much we can do, but number 27 on the American Film Institute Top 100 is High Noon. That's a movie I me- have a, meant to see for so long time because I love westerns, and I, this is one of the big ones. I was hoping you were going to say, that's a movie I've not seen in a long time. You see, I'm not good at this, Brendan. I don't understand improv or uh, <laughs> okay. uh, being set up for stuff, so... <laughs> Well, now you can say it. No, that's a movie I've not seen in a long time. Or ever. Okay, so you can't compare. Uh, I have seen both. I can compare it to Red Dead Redemption 2, which is great. So I'd say it's not as good as Red Dead Redemption 2, but it's still it's pretty good. Um, I've seen both. I'll say that I think Zhivago is... Uh, I think it's a better film. Yeah. Yeah. High Noon is good. Is that a John Ford Western? No, it's Fred Zinneman. Oh, classic! It's a, it's a very anti. Name. It's a very anti-western western. Good, that's what I want. Yeah. Well, anyway, let's move on to the main show. We know what you want to hear, so let's get into our feature presentation of the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, 1964. We're not. Uh, we're not. 
we're not going too far off the path here. No, no, uh, not too different in genre, but uh, but a different film certainly from our previous film, Doctor Zhivago. Definitely not a romance movie, though. No, no, uh, not a lot of ro- not a lot of romance in this movie. A little uh, bit, a little bit with maybe the beginning, but we'll get to that. A, li- a little bit of bromance, maybe. Yeah, but, certainly, certainly. Um, yeah, romance at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, definitely what I would classify it as. <laughs> um, but yeah, Zulu is number thirty-one on the list. Uh, last time, of course, Doctor Zhivago was number twenty-seven. So, Jason, Brendan. What is Zulu about? Well, we got to do a little bit of uh, a little bit of digging here back into the past. Now, I need to remind everybody, I'm not a historian. I'm not even a Dan Carlin. So, if I miss some stuff, that's okay. You can let me know. I'm, I'm doing my best here, uh, uh, but there's a lot of history, and it's hard to pare it down. So, I'm gonna try to give you a brief run up to where historically and politically we are. By I think 1879 when this movie takes place. So well, let's start with cavemen. So cavemen so back, arrive. <laughs> so humans, humans evolve uh, <laughs> from monkeys. Take flash, that. Uh, some shit happens. Flash forward. It's 1815. Uh, <laughs> so the uh, traditionally, we when we think of the British as as having a, an enemy, we think of the French because it's, it's the classic matchup. You know, the, the, it's like Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader. They always always going at it. Darth Vader, known Frenchman. Yes. Known Frenchman, absolutely. <laughs> but. The English also had many other enemies, uh, and still do, uh, but one of their enemies back in the day was the hated Dutch. And they fought with the Dutch a long time, through the 1700s and, and over over colonies and possessions, and it all finally came to a head around 1815, shortly after the end of the Napoleonic Wars, and they signed what was known as the Anglo-Dutch Treaty. And part of that treaty, Brendan, was that the British took possession of the Cape Colony, which is basically a big slice of South, what is modern South Africa. So the British started moving in. Now, as we know <laughs> from their history, the British are not very nice when it comes to being colonials. What? I know it's crazy, um, but they had. But but in addition to the native peoples, the Shosha, the Zulu, and others that lived in South Africa, which the British have no problems dealing with normally because they're natives, right? Uh, there's also some white people there that they have to deal with. The Boers, who are the descendants of Dutch settlers and are farmers and also uh, don't like the British very much. So our film takes place during the fighting with the Zulu Empire, a period known as the Anglo-Zulu Wars. So this is after the British have been in South Africa for a while. They've been trying to mediate the because the, the Boers and the Zulus and the Shosha and all the various ethnic groups, they fight with each other uh, over land and resources and, and all that, right? So the British have tried to mediate that somewhat. Because, of course, they, you know how the British were. They always love sticking their face in everywhere. And, and they're like, oh, yeah, we can take care of this because we're the British. At some point, the British decide, we're in this Cape Colony. We need to legitimize it. We need to pull it together. And this was uh, shortly after Canada, the country that we are living in, Brendan. Uh, you and I? You and I, okay. yes. Uh, shortly after 1867, when Canada became a country mm. and pulled itself together. And the British looked at the example of Canada being drawn into a federation and thought, shit, we can do that in South Africa. And it'd be great. So that's what they did. They or That was what they planned to do. So there was a guy named Sir Henry Bartle Freer who was appointed as the High Commissioner uh, of the Cape Colony, and he was sent to, to federate this thing. Basically, he did it on his own terms. Uh, so without any permission or input from London, Sir Henry decided to unilaterally present an ultimatum to the Zulus. Now, the Zulus were, were one of the native groups living in that area, and obviously the British just wanted their land uh, and resources. Um, and wanted to get them out of the way so that they could set up this colony. So he basically sent them an ultimatum that said, okay, uh, you need to disband your army, and you also need to to stop doing certain cultural things, and if you don't do that, then fuck you, we're coming in. 
And the Zulu king, uh, uh, now you'll have to forgive me. These names are very hard to pronounce for me, uh, my Canadian mouth. But Sitweo, um, Sitweo, uh, uh, the Zulu king Sitweo couldn't accept those ultimatum, obviously, and wouldn't. Yeah. So Sir Henry got his war. So he sends Lord Chelmsford, the commander of British forces, to invade Zululand. They send three different columns in, and on January 22nd, the center column advances to Rourke's Drift, which is where our movie is going to take place. Or they, yeah, so they advance from Rourke's Drift to a place called Isandlwana. They had set up a camp there, and they had gotten word that there were Zulus in the area, but Chelmsford, for whatever reason, didn't, didn't listen to that. Uh, there were 40,000 Zulus in the area, and uh, he was drawn out by a Zulu, like a scout party. And meanwhile, so he was drawn out east, and then the 40,000-strong Zulu uh, army surrounds this uh, place at Ilawana and attacks it and kills in the range of 1,300 British soldiers. Uh, They completely just destroy them, and they take all their guns and some field guns, and, and it is the greatest victory for the Zulu during this conflict and a terrible defeat. So, while shortly after this happened, there was another force of Zulu, 4,000 strong, that was kind of operating on its own, you know, it was operating independently. It wasn't getting orders from the king. And uh, the guy running that decided that, fuck it, we're going to do another attack, and they went after the little missionary station of Rourke's Drift. Now, doesn't the... Now, hold on a second, because what's the king's name? It's like Setu... Seto... Uh, I have it written down two yeah, different ways but here. isn't that the guy who leads them? Uh, no, he actually is. He's in the beginning of the film, sitting with the mercenaries. Okay, I thought he the, was the, the one gray, who the gray bearded dude that is leading them is a different guy. Okay, because I thought when it, well, we'll talk about obviously that opening scene, but mm-hmm. I thought that was when he decides to send them into the battle, and I thought he went with. No, he didn't. He didn't make that order. That was an independent decision on the on the uh, mind of the commander of that group of Zulu. Okay, he's going to do this on his own. Okay. So we so so far we've established that there's a lot of military commanders that think that they know better than their bosses. So, uh, which is probably not too far off from the truth. So, anyways, so this is where the film starts. So we're at Rourke's Drift, which is a little mercenary mercenary station, a little missionary station. It's basically a hospital by hills. Now, I want to note in the film, uh, this movie is filmed in South Africa. Yes. But this where where Rourke's Drift is in the film, that is not the actual Rourke's Drift because the actual Rourke's Drift is very pretty. But the hills are rather small, mm-hmm. so they're not as epic for the for the filming aspect of it. So they went to a different spot, and, and you can see it on the screen. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's this beautiful, vast, like, you know, there's all these mountains and hills and everything. It's great. Oh, and a side note I have to make here while I'm beginning. The the guy who plays the Zulu king, he's an actor named uh, Mango Suthu Buthalezi. Well, not even an actor. He was a guy. And it turns out that not only was he the great grandson, the maternal great-grandson of that specific Zulu king, Setaweo, he would also later become a prominent politician in South Africa and instrumental in ending apartheid. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was really fascinating. So anyway, so we're at Rourke's Drift. Uh, we've got a British unit there. They've gotten word that uh, that the uh, island Nwana happened and they suffered a massive defeat. And there's Zulus coming their way. So the guy that's there, the senior officer, the most senior officer, is a fellow named Chard, John Chard, Lieutenant John Chard, played, played by Stanley Baker, played by Stanley Baker, uh, and he is a uh, member of the Royal Engineers, and he's there building some bridges when they get the word. 
So he decides that they gotta pull their shit together and start getting ready for a defense of Rourke's Drift. Also in this place is a, a, a officer Bromhead played by Michael Caine, who by, at his poshest. At oh yeah, like you will if you just listened to his voice and didn't look, you would not know it was Michael Caine. Mm-hmm. But he is um, he the basically the I mean this is throughout the whole movie, but we could just say now yeah. there is a, a power struggle between those two for the entirety of the film. Yeah. It's, it's not as prominent as you might expect. Uh, cause no, that but was it, my thought initially because I thought, Oh, we have this upper class officer type who's in the infantry and he's got this kind of snooty bit about him. And then we got this like down and dirty engineer who's much more practical and they're going to have like a real like hard head conflict. It was always kind of prevalent, yeah. but it wasn't like every single scene, which I it was that kind of sort a, of restrained British tension, which yeah. I kind of appreciated. But anyways, what, what, I should mention though I need to back up for yeah. a bit here because the movie actually opens up with I was gonna a, say, yeah, a, a Zulu wedding ceremony a we massive have, wedding ceremony and it's it's really cool I like this movie has some amazing scenes of the Zulus doing various tribal dances and, and ceremonies and stuff and it's really cool to watch and it's overseen by uh, Reverend Witt played yes. by Jack Hawkins and his daughter Margarita I'm assuming is his daughter it was, yeah, yeah no it, it was, was his daughter because the, the mo- first time he co- he just said listen daughter I was like <laughs> yeah is it his daughter does she have a name? I didn't even think she had a name. Uh, the only reason I know is because I watched this movie twice, and okay. Michael Caine refers to her. Uh, actually, says hello, Margarita, or whatever. Oh, okay. So that's the only re- that's the only way I do because Reverend Witt literally just says daughter. Yeah. It's the Zulu A daughter. <laughs> so basically, they're sitting there, they're hanging out, they're watching this thing, and um, as it's and criticizing it in their you know Christian way. Sort of. I mean, yeah. he's pretty open to it. I he's, think he's, he's more, more understanding open. than she is. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, while they're watching this, uh, Sateo gets the word that, uh, that, uh, Islamwana has happened and that, uh, yeah, that they had won this great victory. And, and that, then they were all j- jacked up and excited. Yeah. So at this point, the, uh, the Reverend and his daughter decide to leave and head for Rourke's Drift to inform them of what was going on. Yeah. Let them know like, Hey shit guys, Zulu army just wiped out like everyone yeah. at a place way bigger than this yeah. and now they're headed for you and there's 4,000 of them so maybe you want to get out yeah so at Rourke's Drift they've been informed of this by the <coughs> by the uh, what do we call here the Na- Natal Native Contingent Commander Adendorf who now I thought this guy was a boar and maybe he is he says he's a boar he says he's a boar he must be a friendly boar because the boars generally didn't like the English at all and he fought sure them was. in at least two wars he sure was a boar. Uh, but he was part of the Natal native contingent, which was mostly like it was it was white officers, but it was native uh, people from the province of Natal in South Africa, and they formed like a military force. So, okay. So yeah, so so Chard and Bromhead, uh, they meet up, they get together, and they Chard informs him that he's in command because he has a commission date that's like three months earlier than uh, Bromhead's. Which. Uh... Well, you know what? Actually, I'm gonna let's let's say the, the historical inaccuracies. Yeah. I have a whole section of that later. Okay, let's yeah. just save all that because this is one yeah, we'll already. That. Yeah, that's exactly. Like off. The, the, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, uh, so seeing no way of running away, they decide they're gonna build a defensive perimeter and and hold these Zulus off whenever they show up. And keep in mind, they have like 36 of these soldiers that are wounded and yeah. barely able to stand yeah, on their own Yeah, there's about, I think about 150 total soldiers there maybe. Yeah. And uh, they got 4,000 Zulus on the way and a lot, yeah, a lot of them are sick and injured or like uh, uh, 
Henry Hook don't want to fight. It's very <laughs> Alamo esque. Yeah, exactly. In, the, in that, oh, we're the we're just gonna do whatever. We don't expect to win, but we're gonna the, the hold movie. Up the, fort. the movie does have a very Western vibe to it. Oh, like, 100%. it was shot very much in with that kind of a aesthetic in mind. Yeah. Um, well, more on that later. So, too. yeah. So uh, yeah, I also mentioned Henry Hook, uh, and we'll talk about him in the uh, historical uh, yeah. uh, inaccuracies section. But he is a soldier who is in the sick, uh, the sick room, and basically trying to do anything he can to avoid actually having to work. And I think he did. He committed some sort of like crime. Yeah, he was a thief. He's... I think they mentioned he'd stole something or yeah, like alcohol or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, which I don't blame him. <laughs> Where's the brandy? With the medicinal brandy. And he's being constantly castigated by one of his superiors who is also sick, but, uh, you know, is passed out most of the time. And, and having, when he wakes up, he takes the time to, to shit on Hook. <laughs> and having his boils lanced. Yeah. <laughs> so they're at the drift. They're getting ready. Wit, the missionary, he decides the best thing to do is to get shittered. So he starts drinking and he's going on. It's like a hopeless cause and everybody's going to die. And he's just ranting and raving. And eventually some native levies uh, from the NNC, they just, they leave. They listen to him and they just bail. And uh, and at that point, uh, Chard orders him put into the uh, shed and locked in there so he won't bother anybody and hurt morale like he's been doing. And, and then as they're getting ready, a group of uh, uh, NNC Boer cavalry shows up and they inform them that they're all fucked because the Zulus are coming and Chard implores them to stay and help them fight, but they're like, nah, mate, and they take off. Fuck that, y'all. Yeah, fuck that shit. They just bail on them. Yep. So the Zulus approach, and we have these wonderful scenes of them doing war dances and, and being so fucking intimidating. Like, I can't imagine what it would be like to be in that situation of, like, standing there with your rifle, and there's just this 4,000 natives on the top of the hill just dancing and singing and banging their shields, and it's just like, oh, man. Well, the cinematography in those scenes alone is almost like... Uh... David Lean esque yeah, in the sense that it's epic. very picturesque, very yeah. epic, very like daunting. Like the moment you see all of the, so the like, I mean, we'll get into more details once we get through the whole plot here, which there well, honestly isn't a whole lot left. But when you see them show up on the on the mountain at first, and you saw, see all the shields slowly show up one after the other, it's it's done in such a way, and the music, and it's terrifying. Yeah. And it's it, and they linger on it. Like that's one thing you'll notice about this movie is they really linger on the Zulus and and give a lot of time for them to breathe. And as you can watch them as they prepare and get ready for combat. So the Zulus approach and they begin the first attack. It's quickly fought off. It's kind of a piecemeal attack. They don't do a lot of damage and a few of them die and then they retreat. And so the uh, Adendorf tells them that that wasn't a real attack. That the Zulus are are tactically checking their their abilities like checking their lines and seeing where they're where they're vulnerable and how they fight and all that they're gaining information so meanwhile wit is still going on still ranting and raving and trying to encourage people to leave because it's hopeless and he finally has enough of his bullshit and he sends him and his daughter off put him on a cart and kick him down the road you gtfo know? that's right so uh and this is after some attacks have already taken place too, yeah by the way yeah yeah so Let's see. So Chard has been thinking about what's happening here. Uh, he's been concerned about the north side of the camp being attacked when he realizes that, no, they're just going to attack them from all sides. Mm -hmm. That's what they do. And then... And they have guns. And that's the thing, is that uh, when the next attack comes, they open up on them from the hill nearby with guns that they had taken from the Island Wana uh, attack. So now they've got that to deal with. They didn't expect it. They thought they were just going to have to deal with spears and shields, but no, now they've got guns, so that's an extra problem. So the Zulus continue attacking over the course of the next day and night. 
The British manage to repel a number of the waves. The Zulu keep attacking, and eventually they have to pull back to another line that they have built. And as they're fighting, the Zulus manage to set fire to the hospital. The hospital is burning, and there's lots of sick and, and injured people in there. And this is when Henry Hook, uh, you know, gets past his bullshit, and he stands up and becomes a man. And he, as to, you know, clears everybody out of the hospital, and, and well, most of them. Did he? Did that officer die in there? The one that gave him shit, or did he I... get him out? I don't remember. I don't remember. I <laughs> thought he went in for him, but I don't think. I don't think he rescued him because I think yeah. part of the roof fell on the dude. Yeah, it may have been. So I think he was like his intent was to do it, but I don't think he actually did. Yeah. Anyways, they managed to repel them from that attack, and this is by this point it's nighttime. The Zulus continue. They continue the attack. They pull off after the after the hospital thing, and they have a little break, and then in the morning the Zulus come back for another attack for the and they really go at it, but. So when the, when the Zulus show up, they show up at the seeming final blow, they begin this complex war chant and dance, and they're banging their shields and singing, and it's really cool. And so the British, now, as is tradition in many films, the British army likes to sing. And so, of course, if the Zulus are singing a war chant, then they decide they're going to sing along too. So they start singing Men of Harlech. Well, and you know, since we're talking about this right now, why don't we just play a little play clip a little here bit. of uh, the song battle, yeah. I guess, they get into here. <laughs> this is actually pretty crazy. Stop your dreaming Can't you see Their spear points gleaming See their warrior pennant streaming To this battlefield Sing! Steady, steady Come on, sing! So as you can hear there, um, they they are so the Zulu, you said the Zulus are doing their chanting and their war yeah. dancing. Uh, the British are singing their uh, Men of Harlech song. You can hear them both at the same time. I think it's a very like, it's a very kind of cool, Easy. interesting scene. Very much. Um, yeah, I just thought that was really it's a very which, cool scene. Again, we will get to <laughs> we'll that get to later. <laughs> we'll get to that in the historical inaccuracy section. But yeah, so after this happens, then the Zulu attack begins. Now the they begin they they attack are they are attacking the line, and Chard pulls his men back to another line that he has built. So this is like I think the third deep line at this point, uh, but this time he's prepared and has three three ranks of men set up with rifles. So the Zulu come in and he's got these three ranks and he just starts rotating from them. So it's like first rank, they all fire and shoot into the Zulu and then they immediately duck down and the second rank comes up, fire! And they just empty into the Zulu and then they duck down and the third rank pops up and fire! And they empty him into the Zulu and they're putting as much of the queen's lead into these Zulu as possible. And they just end up with a pile of corpses in front of them. So they hold them off. They manage to hold them off with this, with this rotating uh, uh, line of guns and the Zulu retreat. So three hours go by. Again, they begin to chant and dance, but they're not they're not approaching. They're just chanting and dancing. And so Charad asks Adendorf what they're doing, and he tells them they are saluting them mm-hmm. as fellow braves and giving them the respect as fellow warriors. And uh, then they all proceed to leave, and then there's one guy left, and it's very cinematic, and he's on the hill, and he like raises his arm and then turns around and walks away, and you can hear into the distance the fading of the singing of the Zulus. Yes. And then we have a closing narration 
which the narration in this film at the beginning and end is done by Richard Burton. Who, by the way, that is that makes a lot of sense now because I read that Richard Burton and Stanley Baker were longtime drinking buddies. Ah, makes so, sense. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So he explains that uh, that it, because during this thing that uh, eleven Victoria Crosses, uh, which if you don't know, the Victoria Cross is the highest medal for valor that you can get in the Commonwealth. Uh, yeah, eleven yeah. of them were awarded for this. Uh, and it was for I forget battle. the stat, but it was only it was something like uh, I'll find it here because it was it was kind of interesting. Thirteen hundred and forty-four of these Victoria Crosses have been rewarded in a hundred years, and uh, thirteen or maybe eleven. It was eleven. Eleven of those went to uh, the defenders of Rourke's Turf. So it was a big deal. It was a big deal, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and the VC, I mean, getting a VC is, is, is a big deal for your personal honor, but it also is monetarily, you get a nice pension and everything, so that's also a yeah. a big thing. So, and that's where the movie ends, is, is the successful defense of Rourke's Drift. Now, so this movie's about the defense of Rourke's Drift, which they successfully do, but make no mistake, Brendan, this movie is, it, the British were not defending, they were invading. This was the Zulu land. This was the Zulu Empire's territory, and they were invading it. So they, they as much as uh, the movie portrays them as the, the good guys, you know, the, not, the British were villains all across the world. Well, and I think this is the great struggle with this movie. So, I mean, obviously we'll get into the actual quality of the movie, what we thought about it, just as a movie, hmm. in, a, in a minute, but... We need to talk about the great struggle of this movie because it's often been debated, and this movie is fairly well known. I think, yeah. like, I think a lot of people know about it. I don't think it's like, I don't think it's on the level of like everybody knows like what Doctor Zhivago yeah. is. I don't think everyone knows what Zulu is. But um, as we said, it's the best movie made about the Anglo-Zulu War. Yeah, absolutely, it's the one of two. One of two. <laughs> um, but the great debate here for years has been if this is movie is deeply anti-imperialist, yeah, or just racist yeah. now i will say that it's a tough thing because the historical context like you said the british this whole th- how this whole thing started is rooted in deep-seated racism and racism and, and colonialism, colonialism. And, desi- and greed now because the film kind of focuses on the soldiers kind of as individuals yeah. it feels a little less so to me yeah. i mean there is some political stuff in the movie where you're kind of like oh i know why this is really happening mm. um and I find, like, this director... I mean, there's stories about this director, Cy Enfield. He portrays the Zulus not as, like, like mindless villains. No. And I feel like this is one of the few, I guess, quote-unquote, war films. Because it kind of is a war film slash western. Yeah. Where I never got the sense that, oh my god, the Zulus are, like, just evil for no, no. reason. Like, they just, they just want to kill everything. And, even, like, the fact that we spend the opening scene watching the big wedding ceremony... Mm-hmm. Having this reverend um, talking about how you know, uh, e- even like his daughter is kind of is kind of the critique, yeah. like it's kind of the white person critiquing this, saying like, oh this is our, oh this is savage, this is so beastly. Uh, yeah. They're they're marrying all these uh, these women. This is horrible. And then he's he, even the reverend at that point says, well in Europe you you know you have a arranged marriages to rich men maybe zulu are wiser by having arranged marriages to brave men yeah. so Cy Enfield right away is saying look yeah. listen these are brave soldiers yeah. they're going into battle um i'll tell you what i was going to save this for later but while we're on the subject even stanley baker apparently because they filmed it they, they filmed the movie in south africa apartheid was still very much a thing mm-hmm. uh meaning you know people of color were treated much worse than than whites and Stanley Baker apparently fired uh, someone off the set because mm-hmm. he also was a producer mm-hmm. uh, for punching 
a black worker in the face and he immediately fired them also in south africa at the time you could not have sexual relations with someone of color Mm. if you're white and uh it it, it was a flogging punishment if you did so stanley baker uh i don't know about famously but infamously said to that oh well shall i take my punishment while in the midst of it then (laughs) boom oh yeah he was incredibly uh him and and mr enfield and i'm sure many other people on set were just blown away by the level of racism in the country. Mm-hmm. So what I'm trying to say with all that rambling is I don't think the director, I think the director took the material and tried to make it as even as possible. Yeah. I, I think for 1964 British attitudes, this was an, was a pretty progressive film. Now yeah. the Zulu in this film are portrayed as, as strong, you know, smart tactical warriors that have as much of a chain of command and, and, and tactical ability as the British. Now, in one way you can look at that as like, this is them being progressive and, and making sure that they showed the Zulu as like real people and not just a horde of mindless savages. But you also have to look at it from the pro wrestling perspective of you don't bury your opponent, right? If, if they're all like, uh, Oh, look at these whining savages, these, t- these reckless tacticless savages. And then they beat them. Who cares? It doesn't mean anything. Cause they're just a bunch of savages. I've said savages way too much <laughs> but um, it's also the thing it's also the thing though where you have um you have the, and i know historical accuracy be damned but mm. when they salute their bravery yeah. at the end of the film that kind of gives you the idea that they're putting them on an equal playing field too like and, and giving the british uh and, and yeah giving the british a legitimacy of being there almost like by them saluting them. They're like, yes, you are warriors like us. And almost. We salute it, you. But then it's like, eh, but they invaded your homeland. So it's true. But it also, and on the flip side, it also helps the Zulu because if they were going to be like, even like a smart tactical team and they just got defeated and that was it. And they were just killed. Mm. It, I think it has a lot more meaning and yeah. it gives them some more humanity to yeah. have that kind of send off. Yeah. And but, I, I get the other side, too. But we also obviously. have to remind everybody, that never fucking happened. No. That was completely made up for the film, the Which, idea of this salute that they give. Like, yeah. the Zulu, did, like in, in real life, the Zulu, the last attack failed, and they left. Yeah, well, yeah, because the um, they they, they received uh, support. For, like, they received another column, I believe. Oh, okay. Another they column showed up. showed up, and the Zulu were overwhelmed, and they left. Yeah. Um, so, it's just a little bit of background on the movie. So, director Cy Enfield, who we mentioned a few times... Mm-hmm. Uh, was inspired to make the film after reading uh, a book called The Battle of Rourke's Drift. Which I, I laughed at the beginning of the film when I'm watching the credits and I see, based on an article by... <laughs> Is it an article? Okay, I thought it was a book. Um, John Preeper, I think was the guy's uh, name. Preble. Preble. Like Pebble with an R. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, so, Cy takes the script to actor Stanley Baker, who agreed to star in it as well as produce it. And of course, Stanley Baker plays John Chard in the movie The Lead uh, Soldier. Now... The, we, we talked about it kind of being a Western, and yeah. what I thought was interesting about you mentioning that was all, all these extras are not actors. Like, all these Zulu... Uh, these are just Legit Zulu, Zulu tribesmen. Yeah. Um, they didn't know how to act yeah. at first. They had a really hard time with it. So what the director did is he showed them old Gene Autry Westerns and said, this is what I want. This is the kind of style, and kind of shaped their performances. So when you watch them, they're pretty good. Like, they're extras. They're not doing, like, a whole lot of acting, but they don't, they seem very natural. They, they're in the, you know, they're in the zone. Um, I believe them. Yeah. There there was also a long-standing rumor that because of the apartheid laws that the Zulu extras were not paid for their performances. Mm. This is totally false. That's good. Um, they thought they, they, there was a rumor that Cy Enfield had to pay them basically in cattle. 
that they could then sell for more money than mm. they would have been paid anyway. But that is not true. He paid them. Uh, basically, he paid the main ones, the, the main extras, the featured ones the most, then the additional, and then the female dancers, because we only saw them at the in the opening yeah. scene. Um, there's some more... I just want some background here about this movie. So I talked about Stanley Baker punching that dude, right? <laughs> uh, Michael Caine... Michael Caine. Uh, Michael Caine's first major role, major role mm-hmm. in this movie. Um, and he did not think he was going to get it. And I just want to play a little bit of uh, Michael Caine talking about his screen test for this movie because it's kind of interesting. So here we go. The screen test was actually terrible. And I think most screen tests are all you do is photograph somebody's fear, you don't photograph their talent. <laughs> and anyway, that was done on a Friday. And on a Saturday night, I went to a party, and quite by coincidence, Cyanfield was there. And I thought, well, have I got the part or not? And he came in and he just said, good evening, and walked by. And my eyes followed him all around the, the room, waiting for him to say something, at least say, uh, you haven't got the part. And he finally, he came up to me, and he said, you did yesterday probably the worst screen test I've ever seen in my life. He said, Stanley Baker and I may be mad, but we're going to give you the part. <laughs> so, basically what it amounted to, too, is uh, from what I understand, and Michael King didn't fully mention it, they ran out of time. They needed to cast the part. They ran out of time. Michael King, you know, we, I like to do a coulda, shoulda, woulda on this show, or I started last week, I guess. There isn't really one for this, yeah. um, but the only thing is that Michael King was originally going to play Henry Hook. Okay. Uh, but then he, of course, took the role of Bromhead. Basically, they were like, we don't have any more time. You know what? We're going to make it work. Come with us to South Africa because we have to leave now. <laughs> and he nails it. Like, he, he is the epitome of, like, a, a posh British officer. He, Which is crazy. If yeah. you know anything about Michael Caine, that is A insane. man who talks like this does a perfect posh, perfect, like, perfect, like, you know, I don't even... It, it, was it Welsh? I don't know if he was doing Welsh specifically, but the I think he was 24th foot had some Welsh roots Posh, in it. something, yeah. He actually also said that um, he messed up his first take, like, bad. Like, he he's his voice was high a few octaves because he was nervous. <laughs> and the director basically said, cut in the middle of the scene, said, what are you doing? And, like, tried to, like, help him out. And apparently he will never break now like if he's doing a scene uh he said like oh yeah i've done scenes i i keep going with my dialogue even there's like a lamp breaking off set and i can hear it i'm just going he's like i'm so i'm trained in that method now to just keep going so this movie in, in 1964 cost three million dollars to make but yeah about two to three million and uh, which roughly today would be about uh, 23 24 million dollars and it made about eight million then yeah. which is you know, whatever much it more, is now. Much more, much than, more than, than 23 now. It's more than $3 million, which is what it costs. That's only in the U.S., though. Yeah. That's in the U.S. alone. So, in, I mean, in, in in England, I'm sure it did even better. Yeah. Uh, it was banned. It, it, sorry, it was not banned. But in apartheid South Africa, because they still had those fucking laws, yeah. um, no black people could, were allowed to see the film. Because the government was worried that the scenes of uh, black people killing white people would incite the black people living in apartheid South Africa to, you know, typical, start a revolution. Typical racist thinking that, oh, if we let these people see a movie about killing, they're immediately going to want to kill us. And you know what? It's a callback to our last movie we talked about, Dr. Zhivago, because yeah. what happened there? They didn't want to release the movie mm-hmm. in the in the Russia slash Soviet Union, well, Soviet Union, um, because they thought it would cause uprising, right. which is, it, it's like... The, the, the bigger problem, the deeper problem, is less that it would just cause outright violence as then it would inspire a generation of people 
to maybe start resisting that regime over time. Yeah. That's, that's the bigger threat, I suppose. And that's why they ban shit like that. But you can't keep a lid on the truth. <laughs> now, you talked about uh, Prince Butha Lezzi. Butha yeah, Lezzi? Uh, uh, who plays his real-life grandfather in the movie. Great-grandfather. Uh, great-grandfather. Which, again, I'm surprised because I honestly thought he also took part in the battle scenes. But mm-hmm. I guess he's just in that opening scene. Yeah. He actually was asked the question... Um, so this, he was interviewed a couple years ago. He's, I believe he's still alive. Mm-hmm. And he oh, yeah. was, he was asked, uh, this interview said, it's been suggested that perhaps to relaunch a film that was all about the British coming in as colonizers and beating the Zulu nation in this key battle that has been celebrated so much. And it might not be appropriate now to be glorifying this film again. Uh, and she basically said, what do you think about that? And this is what he said. In 1979, I was the chief minister of Kwazulu. That was the centenary of the Anglo-Zulu War. I decided that we were going to remember and, and celebrate, you know, that, that saga. And I remember a very prominent prelate in Durban said to me, oh, how can, you know, you should, as if we should not be reminded of that. You know, I don't know whether it's because I'm a historian. I don't think that one should try to wipe off history, however unpleasant it might be. I don't think that it is so. Because uh, I don't think that, although it may invoke emotions, but I don't think that one should be as emotionally involved as as people who actually went through it. So, there's there's one opinion. Yeah. Um, he thinks it should be uh, observed, I guess. I, I agree. I, we definitely should remember these things. Well... Jason, let's get a little bit into the movie, uh, sure. the details of the movie. Yep. So we obviously we talked a lot about the racist nature of the 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 backstory. Yeah. One thing I noticed right away. So in the opening voiceover, uh, they're talking about you know the the first battle, the battle that we don't see in this movie, um, which that, you can see if you go watch the prequel Zulu Dawn. <laughs> yeah, guys, they made a prequel. In this movie. <laughs> Did not do nearly as well critically or financially. Um, kind of a flop. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's hard. I imagine it's hard to make a movie about where your heroes are massacred. I mean, I guess three hundred did it, but three hundred yeah. had like a good like they, they they put up a good fight. I don't know how good a fight the British put up in uh, is Ilandoana. True. Um, I'll just say this: the trailer for <coughs> I'll just say this: the trailer for Zulu Dawn didn't really make me want to watch it. <laughs> uh, but the the opening so the opening voiceover about how this army lo- lost in the first battle do you notice how like when they're when they're slowly panning through and you see all the you see massive amounts of dead soldiers mm-hmm. dead british soldiers the voiceover is almost like cut out by the noise of like the flames like mm-hmm. it's almost like we're coming into reality like oh yes the british were killed and then it's just like <sighs> yeah that was cool and 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 i don't know about you brendan but for whatever reason and i because i've tried to watch this movie in the past this opening scene always reminds me of the the sequence from uh monty python's uh, meaning of life i think it's meaning of life where where the guys oh. in the tent like whatever and there's all this crazy battle going on around them and they're like having this like like chat in the tent i haven't seen that movie in a long time but that always draw my mind back to that not on this list <laughs> And the, okay, the other thing too, I, I found this out later. Why it reminded me of this, but when the Zulu title flashes on the screen, it's very huge. It's mm. it's it's like literally there are flames in the letters. Is there an exclamation point? No, okay. surprisingly, uh, but it's huge and it flies at the screen. And the music is almost like it's almost like a Bond thing. Yeah. And I was just like, wow, that reminds me of Bond. 
Looked it up. Uh, the guy who did the score for this movie is John Barry, who scored 12 Bond films. Oh. So, well, there you go. There we go. What did you think about the... Um, okay, let's talk about Reverend Witt. Yeah. So he is this guy. Uh, the the king, the Zulu king, is one of his... Is, uh, one of his parishioners? Is that what it is? Or he's in his parish. Member of his parish. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I don't know if... That, that was I was confused by that. Like I, because I know the Zulu were okay with the merc- missionaries. I keep calling them mercenaries. Mercen- same thing. The, the missionary missionary. The religious mercenaries called missionaries that were there. I, I think he was okay with them being there, but I can't. I don't remember if I, I, if they had actually converted in any way or if. Well, I think there's a line later where because well, when Reverend Witt gets to Rourke's Drift and Chard says. How do you know the Zulu are coming? And I think he says the king is a member of my missionary or my, uh, of my parish. Uh, yeah. Parish, and then he says, uh, "Well, which side of the fence are you on?" <laughs> which is just like he's he's a missionary dude. Yeah. Like he's not. He's on. He's he's. It's an he's on question. God's side. Oh boy, is he ever! Yeah. So anyway, so yeah, Reverend Witt. Let's talk about him. He yeah. seems. Why very... are they in the movie? Really? I mean, I don't know the because ultimately, did they do anything? Like, is there any real purpose to them being there other than? being able to be sent away i guess they get there and let them know what's going on but i think he's there to give us some sort of moral fiber to this movie okay um this drunk priest well at the beginning <laughs> you don't think that's that's gonna be the case no. because he's very much like the, his daughter well actually i wrote this down because his daughter says like oh this is quite terrible isn't it like this zulu ritual mm. which you know it, it really isn't it's just no. a massive wedding a ceremony massive wedding, yeah. and he says this bible verse he says what went he out into the wilderness to see a man clothed in soft raiment which is basically like well you're going out into this like unknown area the zulu tribe what did you expect to see like people dressed in suits and like having a party like (laughs) this is this is this is what it is and i thought that was kind of progressive yeah uh especially for a reverend oh hot take (laughs) but later i think he gets a lot more unlikable yeah well yeah i mean when he starts just just telling everybody that they're all gonna die it's hard to like a guy who's just like you're all you're all hopeless. Get out of here. You're going to die. Well, and I wrote down that he's kind of like the crazy Ralph of this movie from Friday the 13th. You know, the guy that's like, Cam Crystal Lake has a death curse. <laughs> and actually, this Dad lead, is better. <laughs> this leads to, I think, something, a clip that you were interested in getting in pulling for this episode here. Because, so Reverend Witt, basically, he eventually gets sent away. Mm-hmm. He he frees the, the native levies. Yeah. Um, which I well, he doesn't ask, free them. He well, just he, he, he scares them and they leave. Yeah, so <laughs> I have a question. So native levies, are these yeah. slaves? No, they. I, I don't believe so. I believe they are part of the uh, Natal native contingent. They okay. were soldiers, essentially. Although they were all wearing like jumpsuits in this movie, which was weird. They felt very much like prisoners to me. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think they were necessarily slaves or prisoners but i mean you know i wouldn't put it past the british but then again this is 1879 and slavery has been outlawed in the british empire for about 30 years at this point so yeah now again slavery you know pay them shit whatever the, the british found ways to do to get done what they needed to get done but by this point they had stopped the practice of just grabbing people and working them until they died so Reverend Witt basically convinces them to go free. Uh, it's at this point he starts drinking heavily. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he, he even gets like another man to to basically read a psalm. Like one of the soldiers, a co- color sergeant born, yeah. uh, who's another uh, interesting character. But he gets him, he's like, what, what? Lift your voice to God, boy. Like, <laughs> let your let your voice be heard to your to your holy leader. This movie almost feels anti-religion in a way. Yeah, it, it does. It does make it look uh, at least in the in in the situation where you're in a fight. It's like, oh, religion is great and all, but we have a job to do. Like, 
he has like a lot of uh, he has a lot of verses. So uh, the big one he says is like the biggest like anti-war thing ever. He said he he maketh wars to cease in all the world. He breaketh the bow and snappeth the spear in sunder. I shall be exalted in the heathens. I shall be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. Mm. Basically saying you know. Uh, it's, it's, he doesn't. He doesn't like it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't like the shit. Um, he has another one where he says uh, he makes a Cain and Abel reference, like yep. basically, don't kill your fellow man just for the sake of your country or your nation. Like, mm-hmm. take care of your fellow brother, whoever he is, or he or she is, or whatever. Which He's, is a wonderful thought, but you know, when you're in the middle of a war, it's hard to it's hard to abide by that. <laughs> so you're saying so hot take. Are you saying you're saying that uh, you don't think Reverend Witt is a necessary character? I I feel like I mean I, is he part of history though? Like I feel like he might. That's be a part. good. I mean, certainly missionaries in South Africa at that time were a big part of what was going on. Yeah. Um, I just don't feel like he does much in the film other than, you know, he's he's what does he spur? Because when he go oh well he spurs that line I like I think uh, <laughs> that's about it. Um, because they, yeah, he gets there, he goes crazy, and then they send him away. So, I don't know what he really does, but you're right. Maybe it is just providing the moral fiber or giving some, like, a counter to the soldiers to be like, you know, you're all going to die. Well, and I and I, and I I set this up, but I didn't end up playing it. So, this is yeah, the clip. So, this is the clip yeah, This is I the like. clip that you like. Um, and this is, uh, so they finally, Reverend Witt is finally kicked out. Yeah. They're like, you got to get out of here. He's drunk off his ass. Margar- Margarita... A poor girl is almost like raped several times, yeah. or at least like, you know, she is certainly. Well, I mean, she is given the business as far as like the the rough talk from the boys. Oh, and there is some like when she leaves the room, so she goes into this hospital room basically to try to convince people to come with them because mm-hmm. uh, they're supposed to be there to take the sick and wounded, right? Yeah. And oh my god, some of the things they're saying, like as soon as she leaves the room, they're like, "I'll tell you what." I'll, like, uh, I know what she needs and I can give it to her or something like yeah. that. And you're like, yikes, guys. Yeah, you have to wonder, though, how long it's been since these fellas have seen a woman. <laughs> True. Uh, <laughs> Not that that justifies their behavior. But... No, it's a harrowing tale. If you watch this movie from her perspective, this yeah. movie is a harrowing tale. Yeah, it's very scary. Um, So they're finally getting kicked out and he's yelling at them, you're all going to die, you're all going to die. And then another soldier, a couple other soldiers have this conversation. That's that attitude. That's very much like the British attitude, the soldier's attitude. Like w- w- like somebody who asks, why why do we have to be the ones to deal with this? And it's like, well, we're here. That's it. We're here. It's who al- else would do it? It's also almost like that's the film's way of trying to stay out of the politics of the whole thing. Yeah. It's like, listen, we're soldiers. Yeah. This is what we're doing. It wasn't It wasn't Lieutenant Chard's posi- uh, a decision to invade Zululand. Yeah, he's and, an engineer. And it wasn't it, Lieutenant or Lieutenant Bromville's decision to invade Zululand. Uh, Bromhead. Bromhead. Yes. I call him Bromville. In a broomhead without <laughs> without the extra O. Bromhead. Um. Okay. Well, the, yeah. So Reverend Witt. I mean, that's pretty much uh, his his uh, kind of character, mm. I guess. What What do we talk about? Um, so again, we mentioned kind of the one of the main conflicts in the background at all times is the uh, the conflict between Chard and Bromhead, mm-hmm. aka Stanley Baker and Michael Caine. It's interesting because uh, Michael Caine 
is almost like a villain, mm. but not in a cartoonish way. Like he's very he's cocky, but it's like it's very like it's subdued. Yeah, well, it's, it's one of those very... things. If this movie had been made today, like his character probably would have been way more of a dick and yeah. for way longer and way harder. Like. I got the sense that there was, like, obviously there was tension between them at the beginning because Chard is an engineer, not an infantry officer. So an infantry officer who is, you know, trained to command troops in combat as opposed to command troops to be building shit, uh, he felt a little slighted, a little slighted, in the British sense, a little slighted. Well, because even when Chard shows up, the yeah. first time he, Bromhead meets him, Chard is literally using his men yeah. to build the bridge. And he says, oh, why did you, why are you using my men? You could have asked me. And he's like, well, they were just sitting on their asses. Mm. And he's like, yes, but all, I... the, all the better, just next time to ask, my dear boy. <laughs> this is the last uh, kind of clip I have here, but just to get an idea of their back and forth. Mm-hmm. So this is when they decide who's basically going to lead this, uh, lead this troop. Let's get one thing clear. I'm no line officer, I'm an engineer. I came here to build a bridge. Jolly lucky for you, eh? I mean, otherwise, you would have been chopped with the rest of the column, wouldn't you? All right. What's the date of your commission? Now, don't tell me. I suppose you have seniority. 1872, May. 1872, February. Oh, well. I suppose there are such things as gifted amateurs. If I'm Are you questioning my right to command? Oh, not your right, old boy. Never mind. We can cooperate, as they say. So he's very condescending. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. They're very much the upper class condescending toward him. And, and, and to speak to this, this again was another piece of history that was fudged for the dr- drama of the movie. Yeah, well, let's just talk about that now. Let, yeah. So uh, the reason... Charge showed up and took over. Bromhead was apparently deaf. Oh, was he? Yeah, almost fully deaf. Huh. Um, I did not know that. So that, like, obviously impe- in, impeded his chance. He also was, like, a lot of people refer... He's referred to a lot as, like, not being very smart. Mm-hmm. Stupid stupid and deaf as a post is what I read. <laughs> um, and an- another thing, too... Um, the difference between their seniority was a lot more than yeah. It was, it was more like a, like a year or two. It's uh, like three years. Oh, was it that long? Yeah. yeah, Chard had been in at least a few years longer than than Bromhead had been. And I think the movie like shortens it to give it that sense of like, okay, he's seniority, but we're still in trouble because both neither of these guys have been doing this that long. Yeah. Which we later find out. There's a little twist late in the movie if you don't know the history. I guess is that this is Chard's first battle ever. And Brahma just assumes that he's been in battle before. Yeah. And he's like, well, he said, even he even says like, did you feel this way after battle? After they have their all their the battles or whatever, where you feel sick and you feel ashamed? And he's like, do you think I would do this more than once? <laughs> so it's their first time for both. Yeah. You never forget your first. That's right. One thing we could also talk about is is the and, and we haven't discussed much of it yet, but some of the weird like the weird secondary characters in this movie and the little weird scenes they have, like the cook. Who's running around the camp and who 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 Chard tells him to pour the soup out on the fires so that the Zulus don't see the fires and yep. he's mad about wasting the soup so he goes to Bromhead about it. And... Have you ever cooked soup for a hundred men? Yeah. <laughs> um. Well, and there and there's all there's Hook, who is I guess the main supporting character. Yeah. So what? <laughs> let's talk about Hook. Yeah. So in the movie, yeah. he's a drunk. 
He's yeah. in the hospital. He's not a model soldier at no. all. He's, he's doing committed. everything he can to avoid work. He's kind of like, uh, uh, what was the MASH character? Is he like Klinger? Except he's not trying to be crazy. He's just trying to avoid doing duty. I've never seen MASH. Oh, you never seen MASH? Dude, you gotta watch you some fucking MASH. Not on the list! <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so Hook. Uh, however, Jason, not historically accurate. No, not at all. Uh, what was Hook like in real life? I think Hook was like a pretty solid soldier in real life. Model soldier. Yeah. A teetotaler. Yeah, didn't drink at all. Didn't drink. Uh, his daughter went to the premiere of the movie, mm. was not impressed when the character of Hook no. came on screen. She walked out, yeah. actually. I don't blame her. I, I don't blame her either. And this is the weird thing. So the character, there's another character, William Allen, yeah. uh, who's very minor in the movie, but they made him, he, he, in real life, he was a drunk. And like basically what Hook is. Yeah. But they took William Allen and made him a model soldier. They took Hook and reversed him because they wanted. They said they wanted Hook to have be, have it be a character with like a redemption arc. Yeah. Why not just switch those characters? Yeah. Why not just make William Allen the drunk, make Hook the minor character that's like a good soldier? It would literally have changed nothing. I don't know anything about it, but all I can think is that uh, William Allen's family was way more way more important than Henry Hook's family. That's I mean, all I could think. <laughs> I mean, I guess maybe. Uh. The acting in this movie is phenomenal. Yes. Oh, it's great. Stanley Baker's great. Michael mm-hmm. Caine, we already said, is great. I don't know that I've ever actually seen Stanley Baker in anything before. I don't think I have. This is the first time yeah. I've ever seen him. Uh, Nigel Green, I believe, is the name of the guy that plays Color Sergeant Bourne. I, I think he Col- might have... Oh, I love him. He might be my favorite yeah. out of all of them. Um, he has the best mustache. Yes. And he's very, like... He, he's, he takes a stereotypical role of, like, um, someone in command mm. and doesn't overdo it. Like, he's yeah. not just, like, barking orders. Like, he is in a way, but he's, it's very, like... It's very British. He's, it's he, very... he's the hard sergeant with a bit of a soft heart, he it is. seems. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's, he's the, the, the... What do they call him? The, the warrior poet. <laughs> even, even later, when people are kind of making jokes to lighten the mood, he's being very stern. You can kind of tell that he's sort of appreciating that people are there's trying like, to there's like a smile hidden behind his sternness yeah it's a it's really underrated acting yeah, um, uh, the the Zulus themselves of course the mm. extras are great we already talked about that uh, like I, I, that's the one thing I wish if they ever re, they, they, I wish they would remake this movie and, and if you could remake this movie and have like a section of it like from the Zulu perspective it well, could be a way more interesting movie. So kind of like what Clint Eastwood did with uh, Letters from Iwo Jima yeah. and Yeah, well, actually Flags that would be interesting fathers. too, to make a counter movie about the Zulu experience yeah. at this battle, or, or at uh, Izan Luana, or whatever. Like That would be really cool. So the crazy thing about this movie is, when we when we opened with, I don't mean to go back too far, but like when we opened with the whole marriage ceremony, yeah. obviously it's, everyone is topless. Yeah. I mean, all the women are topless, you see everything. Uh, this movie is only... You see everything. You see everything. everything. It's only a PG rating. Yeah. Um, if they did well, that... Well, I mean, it's National Geographic-style nudity. Uh, I still think if they did that today, it would be R. Hey, man, it's possible. Yeah, I think I think a, a studio would have to fight Yeah. to get, like, a, a lower rating. They, they might be able to get it, but they would have to fight it. I mean, so the, that, that also means that the battle scenes... They can't really be that violent. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very. It's a lot of the spears going slightly off screen, people falling. Yeah. But what I noticed about the <laughs> very visual for the podcast, like I just, I just did a, a plunging down of a spear with a, it's a very. It's almost a very William Shatner kind of like like if you imagine William Shatner doing a double axe handle, but he has a spear in his hand. That's what the kind of vibe was. William Shatner with his finishing move, the double axe handle <laughs> yep. spear. Uh, but it's almost like it's almost interesting how they do it because like when somebody is like. 
hit with a spear or a bayonet or whatever, it's almost like they're silenced. Yeah. Do you know like as soon as it plunges, it's just kind of like, <laughs> like it's just the life just drains out of them. Yeah. Which I know is a, like a sensor workaround, but also... Yeah, it'd be hard to... And, uh, yeah, they don't want people stabbing people and thrashing around and blood flying all over the place as awesome as that would be. Yeah. I did kind of laugh at this scene that's trying to be dramatic where uh, Chard is injured. Mm. And uh, basically it's the like, I respect you. No, I respect you moment where <laughs> yeah. Bromhead is basically like... We, you can't die, damn it, we need you. Yeah. And of course he doesn't die. No. But, but uh, yeah, that, that's, I mean, maybe it wasn't cliche at the time. Mm. Very, very obviously cliche now. Oh, but to go back to the violence for a sec, like it's, it, like we talked about this movie resembling a Western. It's very Western. Like it's, it's like yep. the violence oh, well, is very much like you would see in a Western. Well, yeah, it's, it's like, a, it's like an Alamo standoff. Yeah. Um, it's like somebody gets shot. There's no blood or anything. They just grab their stomach and fall to the ground. Like, yeah. And, and and you mentioned a little bit of the side characters. Uh, to go back to that, there's a lot of random comedy sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like the cook, um, it's kind of morbid, but the cook is walking around with bullets. Like he's he's handing out bullets to everyone, which they kind of focus on that a lot. The the people who have to provide bullets, which I kind of liked. Like it was kind of yeah, yeah. interesting. You don't always see stuff like that. And then bringing the crates in and have like yeah. the foil on top. And, and he has and the cook has his rifle kind of awkwardly over his shoulder because he's not he's not a soldier. No. And he's just like. Oh, you know, all these damn rifles. Like, oh, no, when it comes down to it, I couldn't really shoot anyone. And then we come right back to reality because he's shot. He's hit with a, a spear and killed. Mm. <laughs> Just like that. There's one character we have to talk about that we haven't talked about yet because he's... I, I totally forgot about this part, but this is kind of instrumental to the movie. So they go and find this guy. I forget which what his name was, but he's the dude with the little... Playing with the calf. He's yeah. like hanging out with the calf. He must oh. be a farmer. I believe he's a farmer of sorts, right? Yes. And so he goes and he's visiting this calf, right? And he loves this little calf. And then they come in, and then the other officer or soldier comes to get him and gives him shit because he's hanging out with the cows and to get back to his post. Private Thomas. Private Thomas. And so then later in the movie, Private Thomas takes a walk over to the farm to check on the cows and the little calf is dead. He'd been, I assume he'd been shot or something. Or... I thought, well, I thought he was just, I thought he just died because, uh, uh, Private Thomas was kind of looking after him. I thought he was sick already, and oh, then maybe. because they were distracted by this, I thought that's what happened. Maybe, maybe it may very shot. well have know. been. I'm not sure. But anyway, so Private Thomas has his moment with that little calf, and then he leaves. And when he leaves, he goes to close the gate, but he doesn't lock the gate. Yeah. And so later in the movie, when the Zulus are in the midst of fighting the uh, the British, the gate opens up, and all the cows come running out, and they and they run through and essentially provide some cavalry support for the. Uh, <laughs> for for our British heroes here, yes, and uh, and and throw chaos into the middle of the of the battle, and uh, I think eventually cause the Zulus to retreat. I think that definitely helped. Yeah. So again, some more historical inaccuracies. So we need to talk about the song battle. The uh, I think we did we mention that that did not happen. No, it did not happen <laughs> at all. No. Did not happen whatsoever. Um, it's a nice cinematic moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, singing back and forth, they're the singing with singing and the chanting. It's it's reminiscent of, of like your of like a World War One movie where where the the English soldiers hear the Germans start to sing "Oh Christmas Tree" in German, and then they start singing along in English, and you know that camaraderie of the enemy in through song. So we also said that the the end where they kind of salute them and stuff is also not the thing that really happened. The Zulu were just overwhelmed and had to leave, had to retreat. Uh, I think the Zulu were probably more just realized that these people were invaders into their homeland and they were defending their homeland and they weren't going to get a salute because they were a bunch of fucking assholes <laughs> who came down and invaded their land. Yeah, there was there was going to be no like mutual respect no. there. So what actually for me because I didn't know the real story. 
watch, having watched it the first time. Mm-hmm. And I thought at the end of the film when so they they think they've won. They're exhausted. They've gone through like three or four different waves at this point, like at least. Yeah. And they're just sitting there. And then all of a sudden over the horizon, you start to see them show up again. And you just see the look of horror on Stanley Baker's face, I think. Yeah. And you're just like, oh my God, no, 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 no. And when you see, you see like just as many Zulus as we saw like at the beginning of the attack. Mm. For me, I'm just like, oh, this is the end. This is the, this because that is terrifying yeah. sight and the director knows how to do that so well with the music and the mm. sounds and the visuals like it's just ah! yeah, it was so so well done so beautiful so as far as critique goes yeah most critics love this movie yeah it has a 95 percent on rotten tomatoes which yeah. is like you know it's an older film so it's not as hard to get a good rating on rotten tomatoes uh but again there's still a huge debate over the you know the racism thing Whitney Balliet of the New York Times kind of addressed the controversy and uh, reviewed the film and saying that the movie not only refurbished all the cliches of the genre, but given them the sheen of high style, it has already been pointed out that Zulu is in poor taste, but so are such invaluable relics as G.A. Henty and Ryder Haggard and Rudyard Kipling. So he's basically like, listen, it's no different from all these people that we friggin' worship. Uh, Rudyard, Kipling wrote a lot of super problematic stuff in or, the modern era, but R- it still Rudyard, doesn't diminish how important it is to to uh, British history and literature. Yeah, guys, Kipling is super racist. Oh, man. The Jungle well, Book. He wrote a poem called The White Man's Burden about Native Peoples. The Jungle Book, man. The yeah. Jungle Book. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about, uh, just real quick, about how this movie influenced others. some other movies. Gladiator, yeah. uh, they use the Zulu war chant. Oh, really? When they're doing the Germanic... Uh, chanting. Oh, that I is never the thought of that. Exact same. That's awesome. I oh, I gotta watch Gladiator again. Uh, the battle is it on this list. <laughs> <laughs> it's on the list. <laughs> the Battle of Helm's Deep from the Two Towers mm-hmm. uh, was filmed in a very similar manner to mm-hmm. the battle in this movie. Yep. It's another one. I think it's the part. I I think it's the part where they're shooting. Uh, not the shooting arrows, but they're shooting the rifles in ranks. Yes, I think that's part of the Helm's Deep. Oh, oh yeah, it was, but they're doing it with like bows and arrows. Yeah, yeah. I think so. So. Um, uh, another little thing here. This isn't really. This is just a little interesting thing I wanted to throw in. So Stanley Baker purchased uh, John Chard's real Victoria medal. Oh, wow. he didn't know. He assumed it was a replica. Yeah. Because he found it that oh, this is a medal, and he's like, okay, it's obviously a replica. It's been a long time. But after Stanley Baker passed away, um, it was sold at auction. The medal was sold at auction, and somebody discovered no, it's it was the real. He never Victoria knew that. Medal. He never knew it. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So he had. Uh, Stanley Baker, also known as a like a historical, historically uh, big gambler. Yeah. So I'm surprised he kept that all. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't throw that on a poker table somewhere. Yeah. Uh, well, before we kind of wrap this up, I guess, do you have any other things you want to bring up with uh, with Zulu? Uh, I mean, the background or something in the movie that we didn't really uh, touch on or touch inappropriately. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I enjoyed somebody calling somebody a, a you dozy Welshman. <laughs> that made me laugh. Um... <laughs> I, well, you actually, you know what? We never talked about the singer. Yeah, yeah, the singer guy. The baritone yeah, yeah. singer. Um, it was kind of interesting that his voice was, until the song at the end, his voice was always used for a purpose that wasn't nece- that wasn't uh, what it was for. Do you know what I mean? Like, at first he's like, oh, I'm a baritone. And they're like, okay, well, get to work on that bridge. Yeah. And then later he's like, yes, uh, I start singing. And they're like, okay, you sing well. Go on the lookout. Yep. <laughs> and then finally he gets to use it. And there's even a cruel joke and almost a little bit of like foreshadowing. Well, it's not foreshadowed because it doesn't happen, but you think it might be is when they're talking about another one of the singers and they're like, yeah, he was shot in the throat 
He's yeah. like, oh, in the throat? Oh, he was a great tenor. Yeah. <laughs> like a singer's shot in the throat. Like, that's, so, that's yeah. kind of dark and almost comedic in a way. It's just the worst the worst possible thing to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's all I would say about him, I guess. Uh, when they when they were building the line at one point and they, they flipped over the wagons, all I could think in my head was, did you see what they did to those wagons? They flipped the bitch. <laughs> Which has nothing to do with the movie, but that was just what was going on in my head. So that, we're, we're talking about, of course, the scene where the re- they, they, the reverend thinks yeah. that they finally relented. They're going to give him the wagons to take the sick and wounded. Yeah. But the soldiers literally flipped them over. Which I was That was kind of like my, uh, yeah, fuck you moment. I was kind of into that. Well, it was I'm practical, too, because they were using those wagons to build the, build the perimeter. Right, fence. Yeah. but it was definitely also to yeah. piss him off. Also to piss off the vicar, yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of liked it. <laughs> Not going to lie. That was my rah, rah, rah moment. Everything was burning. Is it, wait, is that a note that just says more Zulus? Yep. More Zulus! <laughs> uh, it's a British movie, all right. Soldiers start singing. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, we mentioned they did make a prequel to this movie. Yeah. Uh, Zulu Dawn. You know, I have a clip of the trailer, but it's so, like, it's just noise. <laughs> it's not really a lot of, like, but they made one. And I don't really care to watch it. Will when we do our uh, when we do our podcast on the BFI's list of Britain's most mediocre films, we'll no doubt do that one. As well. I hope that's a list somewhere. <laughs> or top the BFI top one hundred uh, films tangent tangentially related to the top one hundred British films of the all BFI's time. The BFI's top one hundred prequels. <laughs> Phantom Menace on there? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Not a list. <laughs> so I think this this uh, brings us to our biggest debate. So it's at number 31 on the BFI list. Mm-hmm. We There is a lot of, you know, there's some racism, historical inaccuracy kind of kind of in the, kind of yep. looming over this movie a little bit. Do you feel like that is enough to stop a movie from being in a list like that? Just in general. No, I mean, fuck, there's, there's so many, there, there's plenty of, of movies that have uh, either terrible messages or, or have had terrible people involved. There's still good movies. I mean, uh, I may have mentioned it before, but you can sit down and watch Triumph of the Will and appreciate it on a filmmaking level without necessarily uh, becoming a Nazi. But you know? but do you think a movie like that should be put on any kind of list, though? That's the uh, thing. If the list is like about like cinematography and and the techniques of the filmmakers, yeah, I can understand that absolutely. Uh, like uh, I think like I'll give you if the... it's on a list of like my most entertaining movies, I'm going to look at a person very strangely that has Triumph of the Will on their list of most entertaining <laughs> movies, top 100 influential movies. Yeah. Well, actually, oh, well, well, that, that's pretty legit. Actually, I not mean that movie. But we're not talking about Triumph of the Will. We're talking about Zulu. <laughs> so, well, well, my example was going to be though, like for example, uh, for the AFI list. Yeah. You know, the sworn enemy of the BFI list. Yes, they hate each other. <laughs> for the 1998, they did the top 100 list, uh, top 100 films of all time. They revised it in 2007. Mm-hmm. They on the 1998 list, Birth of a Nation yeah. was on that list. Very, 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 very problematic movie. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> in the 2007, uh, like I said, in the 2007 revisal, they took it off. Mm. Do you think? Now, do you think that was motivated just because it's Birth of a Nation? Well, I it, it's certainly possible. I it mean, wasn't the only movie taken off, I will say. I mean, I've not seen Birth of a Nation, uh, but I imagine that uh, as important as that movie is, because it is super important, because it established so many conventions for you know filmmaking, the, for filmmaking. technically uh, speaking, yeah, it yeah. is it is one of the most important films of all time. But but is a three hour movie made in like nineteen nineteen entertaining? Is Still, it, is it three hours? Oh, it's like three hours long. Yeah, it's a long movie. The other thing too is like. If there's something else that kind of gets across the same, not message, but the same kind of uh, technical achievement 
or like you know importance on a filmmaking scale yeah. do we need something problematic like if we have something that's that that's the same kind of thing but like a different story that are different like more morals i guess it's yeah. a weird word to use but like do we need something problematic if we have a good alternative uh, i guess that it just i guess it boils down to the individual work itself whether that itself can stand up despite the despite the problematic nature of it uh like i don't know on this bfi list are there any roman polanski movies <laughs> well, i you know i don't think so okay. and this was in 19 19- i mean he's not british but <laughs> oh that's true well he made movies in yeah i'm sure he must have at some point this Although also, now he can't because he can get extradited to the U.S. <laughs> this is also 1999, so this his whole thing wouldn't have happened yet, right? What is already? No, every no you, you, Roman Polanski. Well, it might have happened, but was he was he exiled at that point? Oh yeah. Oh, okay. No, no, he he that that he I was, didn't know it's been for that. He's long. been he hasn't been in the U.S. since the 1970s when that happens because okay. if he steps foot on American soil, he can, he'll be arrested. And if he goes to a country that has an extradition treaty with the U.S., they can arrest him and extradite him to the U.S. And you can learn a lot more about that on our Polance cast. <laughs> yeah. Woo! We're going to talk about uh, the Ninth Gate. <laughs> what an odd choice to start. So, so yeah, that's, that's my only thing. I think if you can... If, no, this is not Zulu, but like I think if you have a movie like Birth of a Nation where it's like so difficult yeah. that I think if you have something similar in scope in technical achievement yeah. and all that stuff, I think you can replace it. You can. And they yeah. I, they did that with another D.W. Griffith movie called Intolerance. They Did they replace that with Intolerance? I believe so. Uh, they replaced... Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, also, yeah, but and also, though, I wouldn't go so far as to compare Zulu to Birth of a Nation as no, far as how problematic it is. No, that's my extreme... That's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my extreme example. Because I think... I, this is the thing. Again... Historically, this should have been a very problematic movie. Yeah. With the with it the, could have with, easily been with with you know the the type of British colonialist attitude that still permeates even to this day amongst some people in that society. Yep, um, but I think the filmmakers and the actors did their best to make it not so. So I guess my last question will be, Jason. It's number thirty one mm-hmm. on the BFI list, and yep. we've only watched two movies. Yep. Would you place this above? Or below Doctor Zhivago. I, I actually, honestly, I would place it above Doctor Zhivago. I mean, I like Doctor Zhivago, but Doctor Zhivago is certainly not my favorite David Lean film, and I enjoyed watching this film a lot more. I a hundred percent agree. Yeah. I would put, I would switch the numbers, yeah. <laughs> which they may be, end up different like later on down the line. But so far, I would say Zulu is my favorite British film. Zulu is the best British film ever made as of this point in our podcast series. <laughs> Uh, that's not to discredit Zhivago, but I Perfectly think... fine. It is also now the worst British film ever made, until <laughs> at least until the next episode. <laughs> well, speaking of which, shall we find out? Let us consult the dice gods. Shall I roll this time? Roll the dice, Brendan. Let's do this. So this is the Okay, number 55. 55. Can't drive fifty-five. So fifty-five is, ladies and gentlemen, nineteen ninety-six. So we are jumping ahead quite a bit. The English Patient. The English Patient, the most uh, uh, popular movie of nineteen ninety-six, Best Picture winner. Oh, the yeah. English Patient. The Englishest of patients. Yes. I'm not gonna lie to you, Jason. I'm not gonna say much about this movie because I'm gonna save it for next episode. But this this feels like homework. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right after that, I'm gonna say this kind of feels like homework. I've never seen this film. I've never so, seen it either. Um, but it, I, I will say that recently I read an article where where there was a poll done where they basically uh, had people vote on 
decades of Best Picture winners at the Academy Awards, and then they took the winners of each decade and put them in a vote, and The English Patient actually won the vote of the best, best picture of all time. Of all of them? Yeah, of all of them. Now, I mean, how many people did this poll? I don't know. It could have been three guys in a back alley somewhere, but the article that I read said that The English Patient was voted as the best, best picture of all time. That that old back alley dice roll. Yep. Uh, (laughs) And also, uh, I'm reminded, isn't there a Seinfeld episode where they are trying to see The English Patient or something to do with The English Patient? Perhaps, but maybe we should save it. We'll save it. We'll save it. Next time, The English Patient, 1996. Watch it, and then join us, because we will spoil the shit out of it. And it's our third, like, almost, like, two to three hour movie in a row. So, signing off, for screen and country, I'm Brendan. And I'm Jason. Bye. I'm Ashley. And I'm Justine. And And we we make make up the Cutaways Podcast. We're watching the good, the bad, and the essentials of the romantic comedy genre. So far, we've fallen in love with Cary Grant, met up with our terrible friend, pal Joey, and had the desire to run our fingers through Patrick Dempsey's hair. Join our slumber party for your ears every other week, brought to you in stereo from our blanket fort in Hollywood, California. You can find and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcatcher. Our digital blanket fort can be found at thecutaways.com. If you are the social butterfly types, you can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as at Cutaways Podcast. Bye! Hi, I'm Ellen, and I'm scared we exist in the Matrix. I'm Jaslyn, and I'm bad at (laughs) ad-libbing. And you're listening to High High Expectations, Expectations, the promo. For our international listeners, you can appreciate our cute New Zealand accents. For our local listeners, you might bump into us in the street three times in the same hour. Our podcast is about pop culture, sexuality, relationships, interesting hobbies, banter, and ragging on each other. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Pocket Casts, Podcast Addict, or anywhere you might like to find podcasts. Yay! Please subscribe. Goodbye! Goodbye!